it's 4.30, so I'll call the meeting to order. Um, this is the MPOJC Urbanized Area Policy Board. Today's Wednesday, January 31st, 2024, and we're at the City Council Chambers in Iowa City. Welcome, everyone. Um, first of all, I want to say that, as Kent stated in the packet, that the Chair John Thomas is no longer on the Iowa City Council and I have been serving as vice chair. So I will serve as chair and for the start of this meeting until a new chair is elected. And so we'll recognize alternates and welcome new board members. Kent? Yeah, so uh, as far as alternate goes, um, I've got Eric Siddig here for Mayor Chris Hoffman of North Liberty. Thanks, Eric, for coming. Um, also, I wanted to welcome some new board members. Uh, Maza here, Salih, back you. again uh, to the MPO board for her second round. Uh, good to see you. Uh, Josh Moe, also from Iowa City. Uh, welcome, Josh. Uh, Royce Peterson from the city of Coralville. And I don't think Tim Kasparik is here uh, from Tiffin, but he may be joining us as well. So uh, welcome to new board members and uh, old members alike. Thank you. So we have consideration of approval of uh, meeting minutes. They were circulated. Are there any additions or corrections? If not, well, consider a motion for approval. So moved. Okay. Second. Okay, motion and second. Uh, any discussion? All in favor, say aye. 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 Anyone opposed, same sign. Motion carries. Then we set the next board meeting. Uh, Kent? Yeah, so um, we'll meet again at 4.30, as we always do. Um, on April 3rd, uh, we have actually our work program is due April 1st, uh, but this happens to be a Wednesday, and we'll work with the DOT to make sure that's fine. Uh, so hope, hopefully, uh, April 3rd will work for the, the majority of you all and location uh, to be determined. We've actually met back-to-back -back here in Iowa City just because that's the way the calendars worked uh, for meeting space, but we'll be rotating on um, for the next meeting, and you'll all get that out about a month in advance, as I do with uh, the uh, Does that tentative that seem to agenda. work for most calendars, except we'll for Rod? For <laughs> Rod, you can make it work. Uh, no, we, we are, all the supervisors okay. would be unable that day. Okay. Okay, well, I'll look at p potentially bumping that up to the Wednesday before, um, but we've got to be in there somewhere just because of the work program. So we'll do the best we can. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Now, uh, public discussion. Is there any um, public that want to uh, talk about an item not on the agenda? Uh, I did just quick have one thing, um, two things actually quick. Uh, first of all, the rural board meeting meets uh, once a year, the rural policy board meeting. So that starts at six o'clock tonight. So hopefully we'll all be uh, easily done before then, but just wanted to throw that out there. Also, uh, just in some sad news, I did want to note that Bob Opliger passed away. Uh, for those that knew Bob, uh, Bob was uh, currently on the technical advisory committee here for the MPO. Uh, he had been, I think, since 2018. Uh, Bob was uh, uh, an advocate for bicycling. Um, he was an advocate for kids and uh, held countless bike rodeos. I know he refereed soccer and did a lot of good things for the community. So really sad to see um, uh, Bob's passing. Just wanted to pass that along. Okay. We'll go to administration report from nominating committee. Um, there were three people on the nominating committee. Yeah, I can tee this up just real quick, um, Mayor. So at your November meeting, you appointed a three-person nominating committee uh, to nominate the chair and vice chair for the 2024 calendar year. Uh, the committee was comprised of Lori Goodrich of Coralville and Chris Hoffman and Brian Wayson of North Liberty. Uh, as director, it's my practice to meet with the chair or at least discuss the agenda with the chair prior to each meeting. And of course, the vice chair assumes the duties of the chair uh, when he or she is not available. And thanks to Louise from uh, Mary University Heights for chipping in here tonight um, thus far. Uh, the former chair, as the mayor mentioned earlier, was John Thomas. Uh, John's last meeting was in November as he chose not to uh, run for city council uh, again. Uh, current vice chair is Louise Fromm, who's helping us out tonight. Uh, Louise has served two one-year terms as vice chair, so it cannot be vice chair uh, again, but of, of course be chair. Uh, and at this time, I just look to a member of the nominating committee to uh, report to the board. Well, I guess that would be uh, me. So, and we didn't change anything since we last talked. So, mm -hmm. so it was our suggestion for uh, Louise to move from vice chair to a chair and mm -hmm. have some continuity. 
and then um, Rod from mm -hmm. uh, Rod from the Board of Supervisors to uh, kind of um, kind of keep things moving along and spread that out a little bit as the vice chair. Fantastic. Okay, so there's a motion for the recommendation from the uh, nominating committee. Are you making that motion? Well, I'll move. Yeah, I, I'll move that. That we Thank appoint you, you as the chair and then Rod as the vice chair. <laughs> Thank you. Is there a second? Second. Second by Josh. Okay. Um, any, uh, all in favor say aye. 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 Anyone opposed? Same sign. Motion carried. Thank, Thank you. you. And, we, and thanks to the nominating committee, and uh, we don't even need to change chairs this way. So. Thank you, fellow <laughs> board members. For <laughs> It's an honor for me to serve as your chair. Thank you. Uh, Okay, we go on to consider approval of the FY25 budget and finance. Yeah, thank you. Kent Ralston, Executive Director of the, of the uh, MPO. The proposed 25 budget and financial forecast is uh, included in your packets for your review. Uh, the primary focus of the MPO continues to be fulfilling state and federal requirements necessary uh, for our entities to receive state and formula funding. Uh, as well as discretionary funds, and to produce locally generated traffic studies, grant applications, mapping services, uh, and the like. Uh, of course, these activities, large and small, provide information on which capital project design funding, policy and programming decisions are made, uh, which I've always thought was a key element of the MPO's work. Uh, the MPO is organized under the City of Iowa City as a division of the Neighborhood and Development Services Department. So all of our MPO staff also serve uh, as Iowa City staff in that capacity. Uh, personnel costs are determined by the collective bargaining agreement between Iowa City and the American Federation of State and County Municipal Employees, or AFSCME. The overall budget that was in your packet uh, reflects an approximate 2.75% increase from 24, uh, primarily due to increases in staff salaries, uh, wages, benefits. Um, and after accounting for staff time devoted solely to the City of Iowa City functions, uh, MPO assessments are then made to all your entities um, based on population. Uh, the FY24 budget was $769,000 and change, and the new budget's about $790,000 and uh, change, so about a $20,000 increase. And again, that's primarily uh, due to benefits uh, and some staff salary increases. Uh, as noted at your November 15th meeting, uh, I anticipate using about $280,000 uh, of DOT funds uh, this year uh, to help offset that um, $790,000 budget. Um, this is an increase from about $230,000 in recent years, uh, and the increase is because of the new transportation legislation. So with that, um, the proposed uh, budget actually holds all of the MPO entities' assessments flat. So Iowa City's will increase just a little bit because of the way the budget works, but otherwise uh, the MPO-specific assessments will be flat. Um, and also, my hope is to be able to do that for a few more years, so long as the, the DOT funding stays the same, uh, which is nice. Uh, with that, unless there's any questions, uh, I'd ask that you please consider approval of the FY25 budget. And upon approval, I'll send those to your staffs uh, for their attention. Any Happy questions any for Kent? Okay. It's, largely, it's largely status quo, and you know, about 90% of our budget is staff salaries. Uh, we don't really have a lot of uh, other expenses. We share services, of course, with Iowa City for our fleet vehicles, our attorney's office, and that sort of thing. So it's been a, a really efficient way to to handle things. I'll move approval of the fiscal year 25 MPOJC budget. I second the motion. Okay. Uh, is there any discussion? All in favor say aye. 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 Anyone opposed, same sign. Motion carries unanimously. Okay, Kent, we have consideration of approval of the Johnson County assessments of the ECI COG. Yeah, thank you. So as we do every year, uh, we also collect um, East Central Iowa Council of Governments dues for Johnson County entities and then forward those on to uh, East Central Iowa Council of Governments, uh, essentially acting as a pass-through. Um, ECCOG assessments are calculated on a per capita basis for the counties they serve. We then turn around and assess each of your entities uh, the same way by population. Um, the FY25 ECCOG budget is a 2% increase for all the counties it serves, which is typical. That's uh, what they've done historically. Uh, ECICOG is the designated regional planning association for East Central Iowa, including Benton, Cedar, Iowa, Johnson, Jones, Lynn, 
Tama and Washington counties, and they provide planning services um, in the areas of community and economic development, housing, transportation, solid waste, uh, and so forth. Uh, Mary Rump, who uh, is a staff member from ECI COG, is here tonight um, to answer any questions you might have about their services or their budget. Um, and if none, uh, we would just be uh, asking that you consider approval of their budget uh, tonight. And with, appro with approval, I will, of course, send that on to your staffs as well. Welcome, Mary. Um, does anyone have any questions for Mary? Okay, we'd consider approval. Okay, so motion to approve. Do you have a question? No, I just want to... You made a motion. Um, yeah, but somebody else also made it. Okay. Second. First. Whoever can't got down, I think we can live with that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I motion and he seconded. Okay. You got that, Kent? Yep. Okay. Thank you. Uh, all in favor, say aye. 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 Anybody opposed? Same sign. Motion carries. Thank you. Thank you for attending, Mary. Now we'll go on to consider appointments to the ECI COG. Yeah, so back at your November meeting, we discussed the MPO entities res uh, responsible for appointments to the East Central Iowa Council of Governments Board of Directors for <clears throat> the calendar year. Uh, that included Johnson County, North Liberty, and Oxford uh, per a rotation in our bylaws. Uh, and also one citizen appointment, which the county makes uh, annually. Uh, the official appointees that I received from each entity include uh, John Green, uh, county supervisor, uh, Mayor Chris Hoffman from North Liberty, and Sean Murphy, a uh, city council member from the city of Oxford, and then the citizen appointment is Allison Wells, also uh, from the county. Uh, and unless any questions, uh, I ask that you please consider approval of the appointments to the ECOG Board of Directors. Happy any, to questions? any questions? Is there a motion? I'll move. I'll second. Okay, motion and second. All in favor, please say aye. 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 Anyone opposed, same sign. Motion carries unanimously, thank you. Consider appointment to representative for the uh, SUDS, I think you call, SUDAS, SUDAS. Yeah, uh, so every other year, uh, the MPO is asked to appoint a representative to the statewide Urban Design and Specifications Board of Directors, or SUDAS, as the mayor just mentioned. Uh, SUDAS is a nonprofit organization which maintains Iowa manuals for public improvement design standards and specifications, including things like sanitary sewer, water mains, streets, sidewalks, utilities, uh, and so forth. Uh, Scott Larson, who is the city engineer, not the, assi the assistant city engineer I had in my memo. Uh, Scott Larson, the city engineer for the city of Coralville, is our current MPO representative uh, and has been for some time. Uh, he served on the SUDAS board since 2005. Uh, Scott is also currently serving as the board president and has indicated his willingness uh, to continue to represent our MPO for another term. Uh, at their January 23rd meeting, uh, the Technical Advisory Committee unanimously recommended appointing, reappointing Scott uh, Larson to the SUDAS Board of Directors. And I'll mention the only requirement for this appointment is that the representative be a professional engineer uh, working for one of our entities. So happy to answer any questions you might have. Otherwise, again, looking for uh, your consideration for an appointment to the SUDAS Board. I move the appointment of Scott Larson. Second. Okay, a motion and second. Uh, all in favor, say aye. 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 Anyone opposed, same sign. Motion carries unanimously. Thank you. Thank you. So we'll go on to discuss uh, the orientation opportunity. Thank yeah. you, Ken. Yeah, thanks. Um, I'll pass this off here in a minute. This is a lot of memos. Uh, for um, new board members or current board members who desire a refresher, uh, I'd like to offer, offer a short orientation, sort of explaining who the MPO is, uh, what we're responsible for, the budgeting process, and those sort of things. Um, I usually do that typically in late February or early March. It just doesn't work out very well that we do that prior to this meeting, unfortunately. Um, so that said, uh, just by a simple show of hands, uh, if anyone would like to sit through an orientation, usually takes an hour or less, and I, of course, work with the group to make sure we have a, a time that works for everyone. Josh, thank you. I'd like to okay. as well. I do. Mazir, okay. We've got down Royce, Josh, Mazir, did I miss anyone? Okay, perfect. I'll reach out to the three of you, and we'll see if we can find a time that's uh, convenient. Thank you. Sure, thank thanks. You. Thank you. So 
We'll go on to transportation planning and consider approval of uh, Federal Trans Transit Administration Section 5307 Transit Operating Formula um, apportionment for F. Y 2023. Hi, hi, Hannah. Hi, Louise. Thank you very much. Uh, good afternoon. Hannah Neal, Associate Transportation Planner. Uh, today, we're asking the policy board to approve the apportionment of the FY23 FTA Section 5307 operating funds. Iowa DOT has indicated that the MPO has a total of $4,672,402 available in these funds. This amount includes small transit intensive communities or stick funding. For more than 10 years, the MPO used the same local formula to distribute these funds based on prior year transit stats from each of the three transit systems. The MPO's local formula was calculated based on operating maintenance costs, locally determined income, revenue miles, and fair revenue. Prior to going fare free August 1st, 2023, Iowa City Transit requested a review of this formula. It should also be noted that CANBUS does not charge a fare and has never received credit for the fare revenue portion of this formula. Although this, the percentage allocation to each of the transit systems has fluctuated over time, a review of past allocations showed that this year over year changes were small. After discussion with the three transit managers, a consensus was reached to adopt a fixed percentage-based allocation, starting with FY23 allocations and extending through FY2027, based on a historic average, and to review those percentages if or when there are major changes to any of the transit systems, such as route changes, operating costs, etc. As a reminder, at your July 11th, 2023 meeting, you all approved the following fixed percentages to apportion FTA 5307 funds. Corville Transit at 16.1%, Iowa City Transit at 60.5%, and Canbus would get 23.4%. The table in your packet shows the FY23 proposed funding apportionment amounts, as well as FY22 allocations for reference. Once approved, the MPO will complete and submit the required annual FTA Section 5307 applications on behalf of each transit system. The proposed FY23 apportionments for Coralville Transit are $752,257, $2,826,803 for Iowa City Transit, and $1,093,342 for Canbus. Staff is requesting approval of the apportionment of the FY23 FTA Section 5307 operating funds, and I'm happy to answer any questions at this time. Any questions? So the good news about these funds, these are operating funds that uh, all three systems use, like Hannah mentioned. The good news is that this number has been increasing over the years. Again, um, not similar to our planning funds that we get, these, these numbers have been on the, the move um, in the right direction. Um, and also the Technical Advisory Committee did uh, unanimously recommend approval of the apportionment at their meeting last week. If no question, is there a motion to approve? So moved. Okay, there's a motion, a second? Second. A second. Uh, all in favor, say aye. 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 Anyone opposed, same sign. Motion carries unanimously, thank you. Thank you. So then we move on to Kent again. Yeah, thanks. So a quick, uh, a couple quick updates. Uh, the first is on the FY25 Transportation Planning Work Program. Uh, the work program is a document that we develop each year to identify projects uh, that we'll be working on the following year. Uh, the work program has developed in a coordinated effort between our technical advisory committee, the Iowa Department of Transportation, and of course this board. Um, annual work program uh, items typically include our state and federally required planning processes, uh, as well as routine projects, but then also special projects requested from uh, our member entities. Uh, we already began soliciting for projects. Uh, I sent out an email to all your local engineers and staffs uh, already last week. Uh, but if you have any special projects in mind for the work program, of course, feel free to discuss those with any of the MPO staff uh, at any time. Um, the Urbanized Area Policy Board will approve the final work program in May. Any questions on the work program? Uh, moving on to the second quick update is on the Transportation Improvement Program. 
So the Transportation Improvement Program then is the programming document for federally funded transportation improvements within our urbanized area. Uh, it includes projects for all modes of transportation, streets, highways, transit, bicycle, and the like. Uh, and the importance of the TIP is, of course, your project has to be included in the project, or excuse me, in the program uh, with the appropriate funding amount in the appropriate year uh, for you to actually utilize those funds. Um, the, this board allocated about uh, $9.3 million in surface transportation block grant funds uh, last year. Um, that's reflected in the, the fiscal year 25 to 28 TIP. Uh, what's exciting is this time next year, we'll actually be coming back to you with more projects and more funding. Um, we'll allocate approximately $7 million in surface transportation block grant funds, about $1.8 million in transportation alternative program funds, and then about $2.8 million in a new program, the carbon reduction program funds uh, that we'll be receiving. So in, in total, something like $13 million uh, or north of there. So really good news. Again, this funding is coming through the new federal transportation legislation, which has really been helping us out. Um, you'll remember maybe last year, um, we go through our funding cycle every two years. Uh, last year, we only allocated the surface transportation block grant funds because the other two pools just weren't quite ready because of the new legislation and trying to figure out exactly how that was going to look. So, um, But this time next year, we'll be allocating a little bit more than $13 million, so that's really exciting. And I'm happy to answer any questions that you might have. Um, this particular TIP won't have any new funds allocated, uh, but it'll still have all the projects that received the, the last round of funding. Uh, and we'll be bringing that to you in July for your approval. Can, can you uh, repeat what the amount was for the alternate uh, yeah. transportation yep. so, block? Yeah, so it's about $7 million in surface transportation block grant funds, and those are the funds typically spent on roadways and bridges in our area. Uh, Megan, to answer your question, about $1.8 million in transportation alternative program funds, and those funds are spent on anything but roadways. Um, and they're, they're set aside for anything but roadways, and that's a federal requirement, not the MPO's requirement. Um, and then about $2.8 million in the carbon reduction program. And those rules are a little bit loose, but pretty much it, it seems as though anything that would actually reduce carbon emissions is fair game. Um, there's a there's a sort of a laundry list of projects that the federal our federal partners think will will qualify, but then there's also a line in the in the regulations that say or if you can make a good cause uh, a good argument. So, so the reason why I'm asking is because I know that this is new to me. Sort of, I did not realize just how regional the bike library is, and obviously mm -hmm. they're working on a capital improvement grant. But it seems to me that there's the possibility that some of these funds might be able to, they might access or apply for some of these, If it's perhaps? for capital, if it's for capital expenses, yep. So this can't be used for operations, but if right. they have capital needs, yeah. um, and I, I'm not thinking what those might be right now, but certainly if they have capital needs, they can apply, yeah. Okay, great. Yep. Good to and you know. mean like you. you open it for grant, something kind of? Right, so this is a competitive, all three of these pools of funding are a competitive grant application, um, just like you would have through the state. Uh, and then ultimately, it's and there's a scoring process that we use, um, and we work with the technical advisory committee to bring you a recommendation, uh, and then we hash that out here, and then we allocate the funds. Sure. Yeah. Any other questions? Thank you, Kent. Thank you. Update on metro area traffic collision analysis, Emily Bothell. Thank, Thank you. you. Good afternoon, Emily Bothell, Senior Associate Transportation Planner. So we completed an update to our metro area traffic collision analysis, which is done typically every three to four years. The analysis identifies any intersection or mid-block location that experienced three or more collisions in the metro area between 2020 and 2022. The analysis then ranks these locations based on a formula using number of collisions, crash rate, and severity of those collisions. The document can be used by communities to identify potential countermeasures based on the severity and type of those collisions. And the analysis is also used by the MPO to score surface transportation block grant program um, applications as Kent was just talking about. Um, the final analysis will be available in the coming weeks, but I did attach a portion of the analysis identifying the top 10 highest ranking intersection locations in the metro, and then the top five highest ranking mid-block locations in the urbanized area. And in comparison to our 27 to 2019 analysis, we do have six new intersections that appeared in the top 10 across the metro. Um, 
two of which previously ranked number 55 and number 122, which means these intersections are experiencing more collisions or more severe collisions. Um, and when looking at the bin block locations, um, the top five locations um, are pretty consistent um, in comparison to the last three-year analysis. Um, I'd be happy to answer any questions. We are doing some um, quality control right now, um, but the analysis, the full analysis, um, should be available in the next <clears throat> week or two. Yeah, so like Emily mentioned, this is the kind of thing we do um, and share with all of your staffs. So the same information was shared uh, with our technical committee last week, which again is comprised of engineers, planners, uh, some elected officials that don't have staffs. Um, but then the other reason for that, so they, so they can address these issues as they see fit, but also to Mazahir's point, um, with the competitive grant applications we have, this is a scoring um, criterion in the application. So if you score um, with a, a top 10 intersection or a mid block, then you're able to uh, get more points. It's for the, for the um, uh, criteria, it's actually the top 25 highest ranking intersections and then the top 10 mid block. So we do have a bigger range there. Oh, that's yeah. amazing. Mm -hmm. What is a collision? Is it a car on car, car on person, pedestrian, bicyclist, all of the above? All of those, yep. Okay. Um, it does have to involve a motor vehicle for this analysis, mm -hmm. but um, in our assumptions, it could include a single vehicle um, as long as um, it can be attributed to the intersection okay. um, or um, something mid block. Yep. And all of these locations, Josh, are areas with three or more collisions make our analysis. So the I, I forget how many lines there are in the, the report, but it, it, it gets up to what, maybe 200? 213. Yeah, so we get all the way down to the 213th um, worst intersection, so to speak, that has three or more collisions. And there's a formula we use with severity, uh, a collision, number of collisions, um, Crash rate. Crash rate. Thank and then you. the crash rate um, uses a common denominator so that we, we kind of equalize all intersections based on ADT and number of days. Right. Okay. Uh, intersection that has 10 collisions on Burlington Street would be different maybe than a, an intersection that has 10 collisions on a, a local street, right, that has far fewer vehicles. So we account yeah. for that. Makes but once sense. the analysis is posted, if you have any questions, feel free to reach out. And this is the one that doesn't count the interstate, I mean, you know, like 80 or 380, right? Or Correct. So um, the the ramps, like intersection, um, for example, uh, Dubuque Street and um, I-80 um, ramp, eastbound ramp and westbound ramp, those two are included as intersections, um, but it's nothing um, like mid-block on the interstate or mid-block on 218. Did you say it is posted or it will be? It will be posted. And when will that be? Um, in the next two weeks. Awesome. We're finishing it up. Yes. Thank can you. we get that emailed to us as well? Certainly. That would be great. Yeah, certainly we can. We, um, the actual analysis part is done. We just have to actually get the report shaped up and looking better. So we just need a few more days. But yeah, we can email that out to the board, definitely. Thank you. And mm -hmm. Emily, what kind of spread was there, like in the top 10 intersections? You know how how far is the ranking in terms of the worst to the? It was it's pretty close. Okay. Um, I can take a a look here. Um, so for the the number one is about nine point seven in terms of our combined score, and the number ten is six point two five. Okay, on a scale of up to that, it could it go, could go forever. Okay, yes. got it. Yep. I look forward to the analysis. Thank yeah, you. Of course. Yeah. And, and you said intersection like in the city kind of, but I remember like the um, governor and and North Dodge, they consider kind of like highway for the state or something like that. Yeah, they they are their state routes. Yes, but we kind would, of. But, but we would still include those because still they're under city, those. the city's okay. control. Right? Yes. Okay. So the state would look to the city um, for it at a minimum a cost share for some kind of countermeasure. So if we know that um, for the Burlington corridor is part of the highway, so if Burlington and Gilbert ranked high, the state might help participate in that, but they'd definitely be looking for a cost share since it's within the municipal boundaries of Iowa City. Yep. Sure. So the only, um, Emily can correct me if I'm wrong here, but the only collisions we would have removed are on uh, the main line on Interstate 80 or 218. Yes. Uh, just because we do not have any control over that. And unfortunately, the collisions on at those locations are also hard to correct. Um, it's a lot of runoff road collisions for various reasons. 
you know, drivers falling asleep, um, under the influence, that kind of thing. And unfortunately, you, any of the pedestrian type collisions are usually somebody out of their car mm -hmm. that has stalled out or something and then, and then has an unfortunate accident. So um, things that are harder for us to fix. Sure. Thank you, Emily. Thank you. We have the update now on metro area bicycle and pedestrian collisions, and that's Sarah Waltz. Hi, Sarah. Hi. I'm uh, Sarah Walls, the uh, Associate Transportation Planner with the MPO. Um, following on, on Emily's report, um, this report is just looking at collisions that involve bicyclists or pedestrians. Um, like her report, it doesn't include collisions that take place on the interstate, on 218, in private uh, parking areas, things like that, on um, private um, drives within the university. Um, although it does include um, roads that go through the university. Um, uh, we use the number of collisions and the severity as a performance measure to um, consider whether our facilities are, are, are getting, our roads are getting safer. And so um, you can see there that generally collisions have been trending downward over these last 10 years for um, bicyclists and pedestrians. And that started around 2016. Um, and then we saw a great drop during the COVID pandemic and then things picked up right after the, uh, the pandemic. Um, the report also then looks at um, the severity of those collisions. So on page two and three of the report, we start with uh, the pedestrian collisions and we can see those <laughs> sort of that up and down again around the pandemic. Um, and with pedestrians, the concern is that even though we're on that downward trend and we've dropped even significantly since last year, but again, this is just a point in time. The concern there is that while our numbers are dropping, the severity of those collisions is increasing, and so we need to be concerned with that. There's um, a variety of different potential explanations. Um, some of you may have read articles about that in the New York Times, like looking at the size of vehicles that we're driving. I think the areas where we have a particular concern um, with pedestrian safety is when um, on our higher speed roadways and on the roadways where we have more than two lanes of traffic. So just generally speaking, those are areas of concern. So we're very happy to see the number of collisions going down, but are concerned about the severity of the pedestrian collisions. On the bicyclist side, um, again, things are trending downward. That's good. You can see that they really, the numbers really dropped again around the time of COVID then up and down again. Um, the happy news is that um, we are seeing the severity of those collisions really drop off. Uh, last year was the first year that the Metro had um, no uh, fatality or serious injury among bicyclists. Unfortunately, in the new year, we have had one severe bicycle um, collision um, kind of during that snow event. So um, we're keeping an eye on those things. Um, Rod had requested um, oof, a map. And Emily, I don't know how I get this to show the entire, do you know? So, and I had copies of the paper map. So you'll see that, um, and this is, again, that looks, <laughs> when Kent looked at this map, he was like, this doesn't look good. That is all of the collisions that have happened for five years. Mm -hmm. So, um, and then you will see the serious to fatal collisions are outlined in red. So there are, there are five fatalities on there. Um, you'll see that things are clustered around the downtown and campus area, which is kind of what we would expect because that's where we have the most pedestrians and the most bicyclists passing through that area. Um, other areas of concern are that sort of the Highway 1, Highway 6 corridor, both in Iowa City and then the Highway 6 corridor um, over in um, Coralville. I would also add, similar to the discussion we just had um, with Emily's presentation, we also use this for our scoring criteria in our TAP applications. So for the, the bike and ped projects, we also use this sort of thing to um, use for a scoring criteria, which I would mention is the board's criteria, um, you know, and we'll revisit that too before we, before we move forward uh, with the grant applications next year, make sure we're still happy with those. Sarah, with, um, oh, go ahead. did something have to be reported to law enforcement to make this? Yes, okay. that's the only mm -hmm. way that we'll know about it, yep. 
And so that probably with bike and pedestrian, similar to car, if it's not if it's not a serious, I mean, if if nobody feels hurt, nothing's right. damaged. People probably don't report it. But if there's an injury and if there's a damage, I think you can safely say that most, the vast majority of those would be reported. Yeah, things like single bike accidents where you know you you hit a pothole and you end up on on the pavement. Um, some of those things probably don't get reported, Rod, just because you kind of you know you pick yourself up, you brush yourself off, and you think, well, there's no reason to report this, so you move about your day. But um, yeah, certainly anything serious, we're pretty confident ends up on here. Am I seeing this right? The pedestrian collision is more than anything else, or the number? Yeah. Yep. It is. Wait, what are you saying? I said the number of pedestrian collision is more than anything else, like the, because the yellow ones, really a lot of them. Um, yeah, so it would be broken down for you in those two, yeah. sorry, well, I just I backed out of that, that. Mm -hmm. um, in the two charts. So they're not, they're not that different. The, the number of bike and pedestrian collisions are not that different. Okay, okay yeah, I can see it in the top. I didn't see it in the top. Yeah, yeah, yeah the yellow might just stand out more. So, yeah. so for instance, in, 20, in 2023, Maz here, it looks like there were 23 uh, bicycle collisions and 19 pedestrian collisions. I see, yeah. Um, and, and Sarah kind of joked earlier, when I looked at this map originally, I said, ooh, that, that doesn't look good. I mean, it's a lot of dots. <laughs> but if you, if you tease out the fact that this is five years worth of data, I see. and if you actually look in the packet at the, the raw numbers, um, you know, any collisions too many, and we want to get this to zero. But you know, 19 collisions and 23 uh, for pedestrians and 23 for bicycles for an entire year. With the increasing number of bikes and peds that we have on the street, which is a good thing, I think mm -hmm. we're, we're trending downward in the number of collisions, total number of collisions, but we're trending upward in the total number of bikes and peds we have on the streets. So. Um, you know, it's a little bit of, of careful what you ask for because we know we're trying to get more bikes and peds because that's a good thing, but then comes with that as more collisions. So, yeah. um, or you would think so. In our case, we're actually heading in the right direction. Um, but anyway, it, the map is, looks a little bit worse than it may really be if you break it down. Yeah. Oh, yeah. One other question. Do we account for all these other scooter type things that I see people on? Um, so um, if somebody's riding like the, one of the electric scooters or like a skateboard, yeah, they're, they're categorized under the pedestrian. Okay. And so we can separate those out as skaters. They do show up, there aren't a lot of them, but they do show up in there, yep. And pedestrian is a little bit tricky too, as we were talking about with Emily's report. Um, a pedestrian is anybody who's not in a car that's not a bicyclist. Mm -hmm. So it could be um, somebody who is getting out of their car that was parked along the street. It, it's a, you know, it, 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 the number is not just people who are walking to somewhere. It's just if you were out of your car at the time of the collision. To Ken's point about the increase in bicycles and pedestrians, which is a good thing, right? Mm -hmm. That would be hard to control for because we don't know how many yeah. of those are. So, for instance, when we, like, look at a rate, mm -hmm. um, we can only look at the average daily traffic of cars along that corridor. We don't have the average daily traffic of bicycles and pedestrians. Now we're starting, as we do um, our counts at intersections, we do count mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, pedestrians and bicyclists, but we don't have enough of that that to form a trend. But um, you know, some of our, we did a count, um, I think at Burlington and Gilbert and something like, Emily, do you remember, like was it over 600 people in an hour, pedestrians pass through mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. So when you think about that number, we don't want anyone to get hit, right. <laughs> obviously. But that's why those numbers in the downtown, that's partly to explain why you have that cluster down there is just the number of, of people moving through. Does the, do the number, they don't control for the increase in overall population that we're seeing either, right? These are just gross numbers. Yep. That'd be an interesting yeah. thing to map is yeah. as the metro population increases, even if we don't necessarily know the breakdown yeah. between cars and nope. pedestrians. Yeah. We, we do, we do know the, the total vehicle miles traveled. Mm -hmm. um, we don't account for it in our, our math here so much, but we do know the total vehicle miles traveled is actually about flat for the metro area. So even though we're growing, mm -hmm. we're not adding a lot more vehicle miles traveled. So the average uh, you know, per capita, 
were driving about the same or maybe slightly less. So it's sort of so it's been pretty stagnant, which is also good and somewhat maybe explained by our increase in transit ridership, bikes, peds, and that sort of thing. Um, yeah, and I you know I we want zero collisions. That's you know where of course we all want to be. Um, but I, I remember coming to an Iowa City Council meeting not all that long ago and saying, you know, if you look at you know 20 or 25 total collisions in a year for pedestrians or bikes, and you would go stand on the corner of say Gilbert and Burlington uh, for an hour during the peak hour, or you know Clinton Street in Burlington for an hour, it, it's sort of like organized chaos, um, and it works really well. But if you stand there, I think you'd be surprised at how few accidents there really are, which I think is a good thing. Um, because it is, it's just, I mean, we, we're becoming a bigger city and, you know, we talk about it in our office, but we, we sit at the corner of intersections a lot. That's part of our jobs. That's what we do. And we observe most, our citizenry doesn't really do that because that's not what you do. But I think if you sit there for an hour, like we do during like a peak hour and really see what's happening, it's sort of amazing that we, that we're doing as well as we are. So, um, for us in our office, we're, we're happy about these numbers and of course we want to get them down, but. I have one thing. You said that you can separate them out at skates, like the electric uh, scooters and um, whatnot? Or? So, yeah, skater, I could pull out what's called skater, which I would assume accounts for the scooters as well. So I mean, we're getting to have so many of these things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That'd be interesting it's a small, to see. It's a small number, but it is in there. Yeah, and that would include, like, the single-wheel... I assume, you know, yeah. How to. Mm -hmm. yeah. And the, and the, the thing about the... Re how we get this data is it's only as good as what the officer puts in the report. Mm -hmm. So if the officer considers the the one wheel thing, whatever they end up being called, he or she may, the officer may say, oh, that's a bicycle, or they may say, that's a scooter, or they may say, and I don't know what kind of training they get for that, um, but I think it's a little bit of, you know, you've got three or four check boxes to use, and sure. we've got all this new technology, so it's a little bit up to the officer's discretion, I think. Mm -hmm. I've got one comment. I saw an article recently, and I apologize, I don't remember where I saw it, but that some metropolitan areas are considering increasing, um, not allowing right turn on red for motorists. Is that kind of a countermeasure that if you felt was uh, mm -hmm. appropriate, you may propose? Yeah, yeah, and we've, we've had some in the community in recent past, and we've actually removed a few in recent past because those weren't the collisions we were having and it was affecting our level of service but certainly that's a countermeasure i th that we could use um what we found a few years ago when we looked at our collisions was my assumption was it was right turners that were creating the problem with pedestrians but what we found is actually it's our left turning traffic that creates more problems with pedestrians than the right turning traffic um i think that's maybe a little bit abnormal and not what i anticipated we would have but certainly it's a countermeasure we can use mm -hmm. yeah we want to use it sparingly just because it affects the, the level of service. But um, yeah, if we knew there was a place that had really heavy right-turning traffic conflicts with pedestrians, I mean, that's the easiest one you can implement. Yeah. And just to be clear, when you say level of service, you mean the speed with which cars can pass through? Um, or bikes and peds. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. all the above. Um, so that it slows down the turnover? It, so when we have, for instance, um, at, up here on Clinton and Iowa, we used to have what was called an all-red ped phase. Mm -hmm. That's what we called it. So if, if you happen to walk through that intersection, it used to be when you pushed the, the recall button, the pedestrian button, everything would go red for a certain amount of time. Mm -hmm. And what that did was it actually created more delay for bikes and pedestrians than we thought was needed as well. So we actually removed that. Um, so we are looking at bike and pedestrian level of service now as well. Great. Thank you. Well, we have created in Iowa City, there's some no right turn on red um, at some of the signals where we have bike lane to bike lane. So to get you through that bike box, there's no right turn on red. Yeah. So you'll see that, for example, if you're northbound on Madison at Burlington, yep. you'll see you have a no, a no right turn on red. The one in Madison, they, from the, you're coming from the IMU, I think they, you get, that's being taken out, right? The no right turn on the bridge. Correct, that was removed. Yep, that was yes. one of them that was removed. I guess not as that last day. No. <laughs> <laughs> but to to all these points, um, you know, this this stuff is pretty fluid and it's pretty easy. I mean, we have to train drivers, bikes, and pedestrians to all get along and do what they're supposed to do. Um, so we don't want to change things too rapidly. But to your point, Greg, you know, if, if we see something's changed in, in a matter of five years or, or three years, whatever it might be, 
these things are pretty easily, you know, changeable, and and we don't want it to be calm. But you know, at any point in time, just because we removed uh, a right turn on red doesn't mean we couldn't re-implement it. Mm-hmm. And, and normally, when you remove it, why you decide to remove it? Yeah. Like, what's the reason for removing it? Uh, typically, it would be either to provide a better level of service, or if we just don't see any improvement. Um, oh. You know, if if we're not, or if we didn't. Or if we don't know what the original reason was, you know, some of these things have been in place for decades, and if we're not seeing that that is the correct countermeasure for the collisions, then there may not be a reason to have it. Sure. Um, okay. So we're sort of constantly looking at these things and trying to make tweaks, um, but again, we we don't want to get too quick with these changes. But everything's pretty implementable when it comes to signs and pavement markings. They're cheap, they're quick, they're easy. Um, engineers like it because of all those for all those reasons. So. I'm glad there's some excitement about this. This is the stuff. <laughs> this is the stuff we get interested in in the office. But it, yeah. you know, you never know if uh, others find it interesting as well. Huh. I have one. Well, this I don't know if it pertains to this part of the the meeting, but I, I had somebody ask me a question, and I couldn't answer it. But they have a place of business, and there's a blind spot coming out of the place of business. It's an, and it's highly pedestrian traffic up and down the sidewalk. Um, so they were asking, one, you know, what's the best fix for that? And two, is that that would be on the business itself to to put signage up if they need to um, so that, you know, or a mirror or whatever mm-hmm. it may be to be able to see past the building coming out? Depending on the situation, I would say typically that would be incumbent upon the business owner. Um, but if it's in the right of way, then the city would have to, you know, the city engineer would have to approve it. Okay. Um, but yeah, typically a, a watch for cars blind corner kind of sign typically is the cheapest and easiest way. You, yep. Thank you. Do you also map reports of I feel unsafe at this intersection or I feel like this is an unsafe intersection versus the data that you're collecting? And is, are there some discrepancies where people really hate certain intersections but there's never any major accidents so there's never a change? We, we, we get um, <coughs> emails and phone calls from people who um, are having difficulty in an intersection, and we will go check and see what's happening at the intersection, okay. and we keep track of all that. Yeah, we log the the concerns we get. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I would say more often than not, they're valid. You know, I mean, if we if we've sometimes they're kind of one offs where somebody's experience isn't typical or the normal. Sure. But you know, we get five, ten complaints in a matter of a week about something. We we usually know, oh, something's changed. You know, the traffic signal timings are off, or um, you know, a drive, a new driveway isn't performing correctly, or you know, there's something usually. So it's not always the case, but usually, if we get more than a few in a week or two, we think, oh, something's something's going on. Yeah. I think you get a lot of avoidance too when it comes to bike and pedestrian. Just avoid the area. Mm-hmm. It feels unsafe. Yeah. You don't go there. Yeah. 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 Human nature kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Excited about the next agenda item with this conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, thank you, Sarah. Uh, We have update on the Safe Streets and Roads for All grant by you, Sarah. Yep, by me. Um, You'll recall that back in July, we applied for the Safe Streets and Roads for All grant. Um, That is part of the bipartisan infrastructure bill and it allows communities to put together a safety action plan and having that safety action plan then makes you eligible for additional funding to implement changes, countermeasures, as Kent was talking about. So um, back in this fall, the first round of awards were announced and we were not on that, but we told you in at December, I think, not to worry, or in November, um, because we had to do some clarification to show where we were not overlapping with ECI COG and some other um, entities. So um, we did get an announcement in December that we um, had been awarded a $300,000 grant um, as part of that program. So now we've um, done some an online webinar to sort of prepare us, and now we're waiting for the federal government to get together with us on an agreement, and that that may take some time, um, just because they're putting through a lot of these grants. But um, we'll keep you abreast of of where we are in that process. And so the next step, once we have that agreement, um, would be to hire a consultant to work with us um, on a safety action plan for the entire metro area. 
Yeah, so this is something that all the, the essentially the city managers or, or supervisors in the county's case agreed to be a part of. Um, there is a little uh, uh, match requirement, but it, the award was $300,000. So the idea is to get this consultant on board and have them look at um, you know the hot spots that we have, so to speak, and, and help us with countermeasures. Um, it's always nice to have somebody from the outside look, make sure we're doing what we should be doing and, and doing it correctly. Thank you, Sarah. We'll go on to the update for Crandick bus transit study. Yeah, so I'll handle that one. I didn't put a memo together in the packet. Just wanted to give you a quick verbal update. Um, I had mentioned, I think, at the last meeting, I'll leave this on as just a standing agenda item. Um, but quick update. So uh, for those that are unaware, uh, just to get you up to speed, years ago, the MPO worked with um, a consultant to put together a passenger rail study on the Crandick rail line. So this is basically from uh, Penn Street, North Liberty, down to Burlington Street in Iowa City. Um, we've got a cost estimate for that. We know more or less how that, that uh, system would work. Now we've moved on to a bus system. So now we're having a consultant look at whether or not we could essentially turn that rail corridor into an offline roadway, so to speak, that has bus rapid transit. Um, Felsberg, Holt, and Olvig, uh, partnered with Nelson Nygaard uh, to do that study. That's the consultant that's in place. Nelson Nygaard actually ha uh, happened to be the consultant that helped with the Metro um, Transit um, sort of rework here recently. So, and my understanding is all three of the systems really happy with the work they did. So um, we've had a couple different stakeholder meetings now um, and the, they've got the existing conditions report done, we've reviewed, and now they're sort of really trying to nail down uh, approximately the north end and the south end of this. So I said, you know, it was roughly from Penn Street, North Liberty to Burlington Street in Iowa City, but what's the best route between the two points, where the stop's gonna be, they're sort of into that sort of tier one analysis, they're calling it. Um, and they've got about six different routes out of maybe 15 or 20 uh, original ones that they've got that nailed down to or pared down to. And then they're doing sort of a, a tier two analysis now and they're stack ranking those six different options against another 10 or 15 different criteria um, to try and really nail those points down. And once they have that, then they can start looking into the real um, nuts and bolts of how it works. So pretty exciting stuff. Um, we've got a member from each of the three transit agencies on the stakeholder committee. Um, we've got two DOT members, one from kind of the rail side, one from the bus side on the stakeholder committee, um, as well as John Green from the counties on the committee. So we're pretty well, um, well advised. Mm -hmm. Happy to answer any questions you might have. One question, Kent, is the southern terminus of mm -hmm. what we're looking at. I think in the past we talked about the possibility of it going as far as the um, county property on Shoot, uh, the one that goes across the river, yeah. the CarQuest building. Yeah, on ben <laughs> off Benton Street. Benton, yep. yeah. So is that still a possibility? It is. We, it's not one of the top six that they came up with. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the, all three transit managers, I think, agreed that there's, it's sort of a what's the benefit for, for doing that, right? So, and, and I don't think it's been ruled out completely, but I think the three transit managers idea is probably stopping at the Pentacrest or maybe slightly south of there, just depending mm -hmm. on how they can get the system to work is probably better. Mm -hmm. um, remains to be seen. Um, but we did discuss that. It, it did not make the top sort of six or so that they had. And I think some of what I'm thinking is just as we expect some land use changes, yeah. right? Like just how are we taking that into account, making sure that they have information on yep. what could be happening in yep. the future. And uh, to that point on the north end, one of the routes or one of the uh, potential routes has, you know, my, my, my idea would have been, it would have been roughly around where the, the tracks cross Penn Street and North Liberty. Their idea might even be it needs to run down more towards the interstate for kind of a park and ride system. So those are the things they're sort of developing oh, now and tweaking. Okay. Yeah. I was thinking further north to Central, but that's that was one of the options. Yep. Okay. Yep. And there's some land available. Um, um, I'm not remembering her name, but uh, there's a member from North Liberty on our stakeholder committee as well. Yep. Good. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, Kent, I was wondering. Um, I've had some contact with some folks who live. Uh, in southern North Liberty, really close to the tracks, who are concerned about noise. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, I don't know this for sure. I said, I, it seems to me that the bus fleet is moving toward electric, mm -hmm. which somewhere down the road would 
you could assume that that would be a much quieter vehicle going past your place. Yeah, I would think so. Certainly quieter than the rail, I, I would believe. Um, and there's been a few concerns, too. I, and I've talked to some of you uh, about some concerns that other folks have been receiving as well. Um, and Coralville, I think, specifically. Um, you know, and folks, you know, that that's, caught, a, so that's a safe assumption to make. Electric, I think, is a safe assumption. Okay. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. And that's in the part of the study is what is the best actual equipment to use, um, whether it's diesel power, diesel electric, that sort of thing. So that'll be that'll be in the 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 report as well. Um, and then just so far, you know, if you are receiving concerns about this and, you know, people caught wind that we're doing the study and they said, whoa, you know, we haven't been asked how we feel about this. You know, my property abuts the, the rail line. Um, the response has been, this is a pretty high level study. This is really to see if it's even possible, um, you know, and to get a high level cost estimate. From that point, then you all will be the, the folks to decide, you know, if we sort of go into that next phase. And I think that's the time at which we say, okay, we're, we're getting, you know, we know this is possible now. Now is the time we want to ask, how, how does the public feel about this? You know, because otherwise we may be getting people excited for, for no good reason, I suppose. And is this going, how are you going to reach out to the public at that point? Are you sending them a letter? Do you just like make it public? Yeah, I mean, my assumption is, is that we would have a consultant on board and they would do a, a public campaign. Yeah, and a pretty robust one at that because this does cross through and buy a lot of individual properties. Yeah. Oh, good. Are there examples of this that we can all try out that have been a, a conversion of a rail line to a bus line? Yeah, there are. Uh, the, the one that comes to mind is, I think, they, I think it's called the MAX in Fort Collins, Colorado. Okay. And that was a rails to bus rapid transit conversion. Yeah. And something I forgot to mention, um, for some of you that might be a little new to this, is part of this study is also to look at if we can get a multi-use trail to run adjacent to the bus line. Uh, we did the same thing with the rail, and it wasn't going to work out quite so well, but there's some differences in regulations and distances and setbacks and that sort of thing. Um, so that's part of the study as well, is to see if, if the bus rapid transit system will work, and if, if so or if not, if we can squeeze in a, a trail next to it. Mm -hmm. yep. Exciting. Mm. It is exciting. Yeah, I agree. Anything okay. else? Okay, we'll go on to a transit pilot project. Yeah, so Kelly Schneider from the county has been kind enough to uh, come and speak with you all about a, a pilot project that she's working on, and uh, appreciate it. Absolutely. So a lot of you we saw last week. So hello again. I'm Kelly Schneider, yes. the Johnson County Mobility Coordinator. I promise I have new information since last Monday, so I'm excited to share that. Uh, so Trip Connect is essentially uh, the name of this pilot project that we are um, hoping to implement this summer. Uh, the work really started in 2021. As mobility coordinator, I have people come to me looking for training and education on transit systems here, and I collect a list of places where our services just don't quite meet that need. Uh, so this project was really to connect people to employment transportation resources, um, and our area of focus is currently in the Corville and North Liberty area. Um, so I. I think almost all of you were at the joint entity meeting, so I won't uh, go too far into that. Um, but in addition to my um, barriers and gaps that I collected, um, at, the, at the time when we were starting at the end of COVID, there was this shift in workforce, and it set, seemed like there was always a for hire sign at just about every other business that you saw. So we really wanted to look at, is, it, is transportation access a reason for people having workforce shortages? So we did lots of conversations with employers and job seekers to kind of get an idea on this issue. And what we came up with is to offer a door-to-door -door service. Uh, so to start small for this service, we will be accepting trips that are traveling within North Liberty and Coralville or from Iowa City and the rest of county into Coralville, North Liberty, and then back out. So much like uh, Ken's work with the bus rapid transit, there's some unknown for the demand in this area. Um, the city of North Liberty 
had high um, ridership for the SEATS ARPA program, the same day service that started last summer. So we really wanted to kind of focus in this area and look at this as an opportunity to see travel patterns for people that live and work in this area. So that's where we focused at. Um, I think I announced last week that we did, um, in order to make this happen, we've applied for several grant funds. Uh, the state of Iowa has a special project funding. Uh, we received all of the money that we asked for for that. Uh, so that will be 350000 split between two years. Um, we just found out this afternoon that we will be receiving the National Center for Mobility Management grant as well. Uh, they're the ones that we've really been kind of working with since 2021 to kind of look into this issue. So we're very excited that um, we're having support on this uh, topic and it will be really interesting to get some data on travel demands and is, is this type of model um, serving the needs of employers and job seekers. So we're very excited about that. Uh, what's a little bit unique about this project is um, we are outsourcing the service. So internally, um, the transit systems are um, doing their best to meet the capacity of their current service level. So we are going to have the experiment of outsourcing the service to a private transportation company. So even since last week, I think the words kind of caught out and I've had some people contacting me saying, hello, when's this RFP gonna be coming out? So we will be looking um, for a provider to operate that service. Uh, we're leaving it fairly open-ended to kind of uh, discover what type of transportation providers are out there, whether they're in our backyard here and within the metro area, or maybe there are a couple of counties over. Uh, we really want to be able to have a diverse set of uh, bids to look at and decide, determine who can operate our service safely and for the best amount. Um, so that's where we're at with this project. Um, in addition to the Coralville and North Liberty area, one thing I always mention is um, the relocation of the Kirkwood Community College. So this used to be on the southeast side of Iowa City. Iowa City Transit had 20-minute bus intervals there during the day, so you could just get there uh, whenever you really needed to. Uh, that change is now in the Oakdale area of Coralville, where there is a CAM bus. Um, the CAM bus is wonderful because it's free. However, the starting place for that bus is not the downtown interchange where the rest of the Coralville and Iowa City buses connect to. So students are having a really difficult time getting out there. Um, Canvas just shared some of their ridership. There's been a massive jump at people boarding at that stop. So people are using the system. Um, however, that system does end its service around 7 o'clock. For night classes at Kirkwood, they're going past that time, so they really can't use that service to get back and forth for night classes. Um, one of the programs at Kirkwood that I work with the closest is the ESL learners. Mm -hmm. um, ESL learners are commonly taking night classes because they're working a job during the day and then they're like, okay, now I have the time to head to Kirkwood and learn English. Um, it's a free service that Kirkwood offers. I just learned that of the 180 students that they have enrolled this session, 110 of them are in that night class. So all of those 110 students have to find their own way to get to this class. So our service time will hopefully uh, be dedicate towards that evening time time period, and then also people that are going to, to work in the early morning. So that's where we really saw the biggest gap. Um, we were fortunate that, um, I need to look this up to make sure I'm reporting it correctly. Um, Kirkwood was able to provide a $10,000 match for the purpose of this grant, and then the City of North Liberty provided uh, $15,000 as they want to see how this serves their residents as well. So that's where we're at with that. Um, we're, because we have the confirmation of um, the grant funds that we've applied for, our goal is to have this RFP come out late February, early May. So stay tuned for that. Questions? Yeah, what I, was the amount that you got from the second grant that you just... So for the second grant is 75000 Oh, very good. Yep. So... Um, if you add those two amounts up, that the two grants that we applied for for year one, that is 71% of the funding. So we really have a great seed to get this started and then collectively look at this as a metro and rural 
community, is this something we want to continue on? So we really have the funds to make that happen. And then also the service model of outsourcing uh, the service. I don't think that that's quite as common um, for public transit in this area, so that will be a new relationship to experience. Yeah, I have a question. First, this is really exciting opportunity, especially for the immigrants community. And, you know, most of them, they even they don't drive and there is no bus to go there. So this is going to be amazing. Uh, my question, two questions. The first one, you talked about, first, remind me, when is this going to start? The service? Yes. So ideally, we will be starting in August. In August? Okay, for the new year, uh, you know, yes, school year. Absolutely. That's great. Yes. And uh, my second question is, you talked about provider. Do you mean, when you say provider, do you mean like transportation companies? Or do you mean like somebody who drive for Uber can sign up? or like individual or? Right, yeah. yeah, that's a really good question. We are hoping to have a variety. So whether that's a small business um, that has the capacity to operate this service at a minimum of two vehicles, we also want there to be the accessibility component. So we're not, they have to have some sort of accessibility or accessible vehicle to transport people that have that level of need. Um, some of the other providers that we've had contact with are doing like Medicaid transportation trips. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yep. Um, so the University of Iowa shared a list with us that they send or they provide to patients when they're looking for transportation. So we're kind of utilizing that list as a starting place as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it so could be like better. definitely open ended. So if you know yeah. anybody, absolutely send them my way. It's same with employers. Um, it's critical to know employers' shift times and needs and where their greatest shortfalls are for staffing, um, because we want to run this service 365, 24 seven. But we just with the funds that I just shared, we just can't quite stretch it that far. Uh, so we really want to make sure we're um, offering the service at a time that fits the greatest need. Um, one of the components to the RFP will make sure that the provider, whoever that may be, is able to scale and adjust. So if we have a sudden demand in services for a time of the day where we need more vehicles, we want to make sure that they have that capacity. Yeah, I guess that's because I remember a long time ago before Uber come, the most of the immigrants, they have this taxis companies, and after Uber, they just lost those, you know, companies anymore. So I think that's good opportunity for them to come and apply. Absolutely. We're very excited to see who is interested in this type of work. Yeah. Thank you. We spread out the word. So. Thank you. Anything else? Okay. We'll keep you posted as everything evolves. Thanks. Thank you, Kelly. Thanks, Kelly. Uh, is there any other business? No. Uh, is there a motion for adjournment? I would happy to move that. I'll second that. <laughs> okay, motion and second. All in favor, say aye. 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 Opposed? Motion carried. Thank you, everyone. I appreciate your time very much.